Tonight, uh, we actually have a really awesome opportunity to hear from somebody who's actually going to open things up for us. Uh, he's the pastor of, this, uh, of the church that meets in this place. He's the pastor of a bunch of people who are on fire for Jesus. And um, it's called, they're, they're called the Refuge Church, and we are using their facilities. Can we give it up for Pastor Nathan Breidhop? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you for coming. I, I was excited that Sam asked me to preach because this is a message I, I preached about a month ago. And uh, when I preached it, I said, there's something there. I want to preach that one again. Um, so I'm excited to preach this message to you. Uh, we're going to look at the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, uh, it's the, the most famous verse in the Bible. We're going to read it. We're going to buzz through that one tonight, John 3.16. So uh, you will, if you've never read this story, you will probably come across one or two scriptures you've heard before. I'm just going to read it to you as we get started. Um, it says, Now there was a man named Nicodemus. This is John 3, verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. That's a sermon right there. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. What's the evidence that God is with you? Ouch. Me too. I believe we're called to live a miraculous life as evidence that God is with us. Anyway, that's not what I'm talking about tonight. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this, right here, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, our guide. And I thank you that there's no striving in your love. Lord, I thank you that you didn't just come to show us the way, but you came to be the way. 
And so, Lord, I pray tonight, uh, would your word pierce our hearts, and uh, may we not look in the mirror and leave unchanged tonight. Amen. Okay, you guys have been on a long drive. It's 10 o'clock at night. I honestly can say I've never preached at 10 o'clock at night before. So i got to start with some cheesy jokes. And uh, just so you know, this isn't for you. These jokes are for me. And so um, I don't care whether you think they're funny or not. Laugh. Okay? That's your job. You laugh for me. Not for these jokes. For me. Okay, these are the 10 cheesiest teacher jokes I could find. Number 10, what do you call a teacher without students? Happy. My teacher is cross-eyed. She can't control her pupils. That's number nine. Uh, did you know a, a globe means the world to a geography teacher? That's number eight. Number seven, my teacher always tells me to follow my dreams, but she never lets me sleep in class. Number six, my teacher forgot to take attendance today. She's absent-minded. My teacher said, I want, it, I want you to give me the longest sentence you can think of. I said, life in prison. My teacher pointed his ruler at me. Oh, I love this one. My teacher pointed his ruler at me when I was talking in class and told me there was an idiot at the end of it. I asked him which end. When I was a toddler, my parents would always say, excuse my French, just, just after using a swear word. I'll never forget the first day of school when my teacher asked if any of us knew any French. My teacher's a real joker. She came into class today and said, we'll only have a half a day of school this morning. When we all cheered, she said, we'll have the other half this afternoon. Okay, I love this one. This is number one. This is the number one cheesiest teacher joke. A new teacher trying to make use of her psychology courses started class by saying, everyone who thinks they're stupid, stand up. After a few seconds, little Johnny stood up. The teacher said, do you think you're stupid, Johnny? No, ma'am, he said, but I hate to see you standing up there all by yourself. So, who's the best teacher you've ever had? I went to LCSC, so I know the best teacher on that campus, and I'll bet you we, if, if you've taken any psychology classes, we probably all agree. Rhett Diesner. I was still in high school when I took my first Rhett Diesner class, and I said, dang it, this guy's a better Christian than I am. I can tell you about another teacher on that campus. Well, I don't know if he's on that campus anymore. He's actually a Boise State professor. I did the, the uh, graduate program uh, for social work through Boise State on the campus at LCSE, and I don't even remember this guy's name because I wanted to forget him. First day I walked into class, he was from Boise State and he graduated from Berkeley. So red flag right there for me. Uh, if you knew me any, at all, that would be, we're not, probably not going to get along. Uh, college professor from Berkeley. I'm from, born and raised in Idaho. Anyway, I go into class, no lights. We're not allowed to turn the lights on in class. Now, this might be the normal professors nowadays. I went to school a long time ago. They weren't all crazy. They might all be crazy now. I don't know. No lights, no printed. We couldn't print anything on paper. And what did he say? He doesn't eat oranges because of uh, the uh, footprint caused by shipping oranges 
from Florida and California. And, uh, yeah. And then, um, what's the thing, you know, I couldn't remember the word for it, but you know how you, like, do the survey every semester on the class? Like, hey, I like this, I didn't like this? Yeah, and it goes to a certain board, right? What was the, what's that board called? The, the review, anyway. When he handed those out to us, because it, was, it wasn't LCSE, it was through Boise State, right? He hands those out, and he says, fill these out, but just so you know, I'm the head of the board, so it doesn't really matter what you put on those, uh, those evaluations. He wasn't very happy, I don't think, that he had to drive to Lewiston once a week and teach in stinky Lewiston, because he was a Berkeley grad at Boise State. I've had good teachers. I've had bad teachers. Hugh Laybourne was my teacher at one point, and uh, it was just about exactly what you'd expect. No rules. Hanging out, doing art. It was pretty awesome. Today, so tonight I want to talk about uh, this story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus here, he's, we'll get into who Nicodemus was, but he's coming to Jesus because he's coming as a student to a teacher, but I think he leaves getting something more than he bargained for. Jesus didn't exactly give him what he expected. Um, so whenever I examine a portion of Scripture, I start with some pretty basic questions, right? Who, what, where, when, why, how, all that. So I want to just kind of go through that. Who, who in this story? Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the guy I want to look at tonight. Who was Nicodemus? There, it starts John 3, 1. There was a man named Nicodemus. He was a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. So you guys all probably know this, just because I know Sam, so you probably all have heard this before. Every kid grew up wanting to be a Pharisee. They all went to school at church, basically. And you memorize your Bible. And at, at certain grades, if you do good enough, you get to keep going. And if you do good enough, you get to keep going. And eventually, one of the religious men, the rabbis, the Pharisees, those guys would, if you were a really good student, they'd say, hey, follow me. And you would learn their, you would take their yoke upon you. Uh, you would learn their teaching, and you would be their disciple. And you would become a Pharisee. That was the goal of school, to be a Pharisee. There weren't all these other schools. You, everybody wanted to be a Pharisee. But it's just whether or not you made the cut. So already, he's a Pharisee. That means he's pretty exclusive. But now we know he's not only a Pharisee. He's on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. It's about 70, 72, something like that. Guys on this council. So this is like the Jedi council of the Pharisees. This is the Pharisees of Pharisees. And then we find out in the story that he's an old man. So there's 72 guys in the whole nation that are qualified to be on the Sanhedrin. And then just knowing Jewish culture, he's an old man. So he's the old man on this ex in this exclusive club. So being old, he was honored. So he's a Pharisee. That's honor. Now among the Pharisees, he's on the Sanhedrin. That's honor among the Pharisees. Now on that board of Sanhedrins, he's the old man. That's another honor. And then we find out in the story, the translation I used, I didn't really like this translation. I should have used a different one, but whatever. There were some parts I liked. Jesus says, you are the teacher of Israel. He doesn't say a teacher. He says the teacher. So he's not one of the teachers. This is the teacher of the teachers in the nation of Israel. 
So we're talking about the most elite man as far as honor and prestige in the nation. He's a celebrity. And he's coming to Jesus. Now why, why does all that... Let me see. Let me back up here. For us now, because of Jesus, we have this... The minute we say Pharisee, what's the Sunday school song about I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not Pharisee? Like, we immediately, like, the minute we hear Pharisee, we're like, bad guy. That's the bad guy in the story. But in this time, that was not the case. Let me, let me read something to you. Um, this is uh, by, uh, a quote from Larry Osborne in a book called Accidental Pharisees. He says, today when most of us hear the word Pharisee, we immediately conjure up images of hypocritical, narrow-minded, puffed-up spiritual losers. But in Jesus' day, being called a Pharisee was considered a badge of honor. It was a compliment, not a slam. That's because, because first-century Pharisees excelled at everything, everything we look up to spiritually. They were zealous for God, completely committed to their faith, they were theologically astute, masters of the biblical text. They obeyed even the most obscure commands, and they even made up some of their own rules just in case they were missing anything. Their embrace of spiritual discipline was second to none. Yeah, they could be a bit harsh and arrogant at times, but most of their con uh, contemporaries took it in stride. After all, this part's powerful. After all, they had earned the right to boast and look down on everyone else. They were paying a price... No one else was willing to pay. So we, we hear the word Pharisee, and we go, oh, Pharisee, bad guy. In those days, they were not the bad guys. These were the spiritually hungry ones. These were the ones studying the scriptures. These were the religious leaders, rock stars of the day. When, so why does it matter who Nicodemus was, and that he was a Pharisee, and he was great, and all that? When you read your Bible... I think two things you need to pay attention to. You need to pay attention to when the main character is the best or the worst. Whenever the main character is portrayed as the best or whenever the main character is portrayed as the least or the worst. In the Bible, whenever the main character is the best, Noah, it says of Noah, there was none on the earth as righteous as Noah. Do you know the point of the story of Noah? The moral of the story of Noah is not how obedient and righteous Noah was. The point of the story of Noah is that the most holy man on the planet ends up naked and drunk in a tent. Whenever the story is about the best... The moral of the story is always about their shortcomings. Whenever the story is about the least, it's always about what God can do with the least. When the angel comes and visits Gideon, he's hiding. And the angel comes to Gideon and he says, hey, mighty man of valor. And you know what Gideon says? I'm the least in my family, and my family's the least in my tribe, which is the least in Israel. I'm the least of the least of the least. Do you know what the moral of the story of Gideon is? What God can do with the least. He leads Israel to victory. So we pay attention to who the character is. Because whenever the story is about the best, we know immediately the moral of this story is going to be how the best of us fall short. So here we have the best, the most elite, 
the holiest man on the planet next to Jesus coming to Jesus. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that the, the moral of this story is that the best of us fall short? Uh, I'm a sports guy, so I, I use sports analogies to help things make sense to me. And being a, a godly sports person, I hate the Patriots. But I have to say, there's one thing. Okay, Tom Brady, I love, if you've ever seen the picture of him when he, at the Combines, like when, you know, how they have like all the athletes before they get drafted, they come and they get their picture taken like with their shirt off. And he's like, no chest, like the nerdiest looking dude. And like slower than molasses, like everything, the worst. And now everybody, it's basically the consensus that Tom Brady is the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. And anyone who knows anything about football, they would say the reason he's the best is because he allows his coaches to coach him. And what I mean is, imagine this. Tom Brady's been on the team for, I don't know, 25, 30 years now. Feels like as long as I've been alive. He's 42 years old and he's playing, he's playing football with the kids of people he played with or something like that. It's crazy. Anyway. You're, you're a rookie on the team. You're the first-round draft pick by the New England Patriots. You're making uh, $5, 6000000 million a year. Who knows? You're like a star in the league. And you're on the team, and you guys just had a bad game. And you're coming back to practice the next day. And Bill Belichick is ticked off. And he says, you guys did not hustle on Sunday. You didn't play hard. You, you were sloppy out there. You, you were undisciplined. So today we're running. We're running wind splint, sprints, all practice. And inside of you, you go, wait a minute. I'm a star. Stars don't run. But then you look over and you see number 12. And he laces up his shoes and he starts running. And you know what you do? You start running. You know why? Because if it applies to Tom Brady, it applies to you. Right? Like, okay, if, if Bill Belichick can chew out Tom Brady like that, that's what everybody says is that Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, the coach of the Patriots, chews out Tom Brady the same way he does any rookie or any no-name player on the team. And so when you're on that team, you know what you understand? If it applies to the best, it applies to the rest. And so here, this story, you know we're not the main target audience when John wrote this, right? So to the target audience here, they understand who Nicodemus is. They understand who he is politically and religiously and culturally. And so this story is in here. Jewish people are reading this story, and they're seeing the best of the best come to Jesus. And Jesus is telling him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. If it applies to the best, it applies to the rest. Not one Jew could read this story and say, I wonder if I need to be born again. Pay attention when the story is about the best. Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again. See now, 
in Jewish culture, they believed they were entitled to see the kingdom of God. That they were, as Jews, they would inherit eternal life. They actually believed they had to do something to not get it. Like they were in and they had to do something to get out. And now here's Jesus, not to some low-level Jew, but to the elite of the elite saying, no, actually, you're out, and you need to do something to get in. You've got to be born again. Right now, where you are, you are not in. You must be born again. You've got to do something to come in. So, this story matters to the original reader. Because the original reader would read this and say, Oh my goodness, if Nicodemus needs to be born again. Wow. That's the who. What about the when? The story says, in uh, the second verse, it says, After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. You know, very rarely in these stories does it say what time of day everything all happened. It wasn't like, oh, about three, about three o'clock, you know, Jesus sat on the mountain and preached a sermon. There's a few times in Scripture where it gives us the time of day. And I think everything in Scripture matters. Everything matters. So here comes Nicodemus at night. Now, there's lots of theories about why Nicodemus came at night. The most obvious one that everybody kind of believes is that Nicodemus was afraid of being seen going to Jesus. And so he snuck over there at night. That could be true. A couple of other theories is that, you know, Nicodemus spends all day counseling people, studying, teaching, and this was just the only time he had any free time. Or it could be the reverse, that Jesus is so busy preaching and teaching and doing all these miracles that this was finally the time where Nicodemus could talk to him. Or it was the only time where someone like Nicodemus could get one-on-one time with Jesus. I mean, this would be like, you know, some celebrity, uh, Kanye, coming to uh, meet with the pastor. You know, it actually is kind of tricky for those guys. Like, they can't, it's hard to just, they can't just go to church on Sunday. It, it actually would create chaos, right? And, and be a distraction, And so it could be something like that. Nicodemus is kind of a celebrity. So he's like, hey, I don't want to cause a scene. I'll meet with Jesus one-on-one after hours. That way uh, we can talk and it won't won't disrupt what Jesus is doing. I don't know about all that. I think he probably didn't want to be seen with Jesus. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I think it's interesting that the author of this book, John, is the one who says, hey, he came to him at night. He came to him in darkness. He came after Jesus when it was dark outside in the middle of the night. You know why I think that's interesting? It's because the whole book starts this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines... In the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Nicodemus found Jesus in the darkness. That gives me hope. That gives me hope because it doesn't matter what situation I am in in life. 
In fact, the darker the better. Because that's where the light shines. So it doesn't matter where you came in with this weekend, all the stress and all the worry, all the insecurity, all the sin, whatever. In the middle of your darkness, Jesus is there waiting to encounter you. Nicodemus met Jesus in the darkness. He met him in the night. The light of the world found in darkness. Okay, that's the when. What about the what? So Nicodemus came to Jesus. He came to find a teacher. In fact, he even calls him a teacher. He calls him rabbi. He calls him teacher. And I love this. He came to speak with Jesus. He said, Rabbi, we all know. Who's this we? The same people that, like, got him killed? We all know that God has sent you to teach us. We all know. Rabbi, right there, in that one word, we find out Nicodemus' intentions. I'm a student. You're the teacher. I'm here to learn. Teach me. You're the teacher. I'm the student. I want to learn from you. I love that Jesus doesn't acknowledge it. Jesus, Jesus um, has this way in Scripture of answering questions that people aren't asking or asking questions that they, didn't, they don't know the answers to. I love this here. He just kind of like skips over and he says, yeah, 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 you got to be born again. But so before he gets there, he gives, he gives, he gives uh, Nicodemus a few, um, a few lessons, I guess. A couple of lessons. And like any good communicator, this is for me uh, when, when, I, uh, when I learned this skill, and I hope I'm still learning it, I improved greatly in my communication. A novice communicator communicates in the way that makes sense to them. But an expert communicator communicates in a way that makes sense to the audience. And so when Jesus is speaking to farmers, he talks about dirt. And when he's talking to Nicodemus, he uses scripture. And, and, and he hides it really subtly. But first, he's got the first lesson here is water and spirit. Jesus replied, Rabbi, teach me. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Spirit and water working together to bring life. Nicodemus is a student of the scriptures. He has his Old Testament memorized. Or in those days, he had the Bible memorized. If I'm Nicodemus and I'm sitting there with Jesus and he says, spirit and water, new life. I'm going spirit and water mingling together and bringing new life. That sounds really familiar. Maybe what I'll do is I'll start at the beginning of my Bible and I'll do a little word study. And I'll see where I can find in scripture the places where spirit and life 
work together to bring life. In fact, I thought, you know, we have all weekend. So I thought it'd be kind of fun. Let's start at the beginning of the Bible and just go until we find spirit and water bringing life. Deal? So let's go to Genesis 1 and we'll just start reading until we find something. Here we go. Ready? Hopefully my voice uh, lasts long enough. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Well, that didn't take long. Sweet. He's saying, okay, Nicodemus, you want to learn from me? Here's what's happening. Remember back then when I started this whole thing where we built the, the garden? We're going back to that garden. We're going back. And the Spirit and water are going to mingle again, and they're going to bring new life. And if you're going to live in this new kingdom, you've got to enter the same way we did the first time, in spirit and water, bringing life into this new kingdom. Just a little like, okay, Nicodemus, here's a clue. It's kind of a tricky one, though, right? I guess that's kind of hidden. But then he could have even remembered Ezekiel when um, the prophet Ezekiel says, I will... Uh, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Spirit and water bringing new life. Those are just two off the top of my head that Nicodemus had to have known. And yet he's confounded. And Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, you should know this. How is he missing this? How is the teacher missing this? I mean, I only had to do like two Google searches to figure this out. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. Anyway, so Jesus, that, that lesson flopped. Nicodemus didn't get it. So Jesus says, okay, let's try this a different way. I'll tell you a story. This one's a little more blatant. This one's a little more obvious. A little more like um, less uh, allegorical and more clear and concrete. Okay, here we go. Snakes in the desert. Can you handle this one, Nicodemus? Snakes in the desert. You know this one. Remember your Sunday school teacher with the felt board and the little felt snakes. Nicodemus, you know this one. So he tells him this story. He says, just as Moses in the desert lifted up the brass replica of a snake on a pole for all the people to see and be healed, so the Son of Man is ready to be lifted up so that those who truly believe in him will not perish but be given eternal life. Now Nicodemus better know this one. This is Numbers. I think it's chapter 21. The people are grumbling and complaining. And so because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God, snakes come and they're biting them and they're dying. And I can't imagine this, like what this looked like. But it must have been just thousands of snakes attacking the Israelites. And it must have been over a period of time because they had time to like make, like forge this snake out of bronze. Like, while people are, you know, dying, somebody's in the forge, forged in fire. All you nerds out there. Forging, I don't know if that would be considered forging, I don't know. 
I don't know anything about metal stuff. I don't think that's forging, is it? It's, uh, yeah, there we go, casting. Anyway, dang it. Uh, so God says to the Israelites, when Moses is like, hey, how do we fix this? And God says, okay, make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. When the people look at the snake, they'll be healed. So I grew up in the church. I hear these stories all the time. I heard them, I've heard this story 10,000 times. And sometimes when you've heard the story 10,000 times, you lose the like reality of it. Like in real life, what did that look like? I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but um, this one is really weird to me. Like if I was one of those people, like this is the one time where seeing was believing. Like they had to see the snake and then they got healed. And, uh, and Jesus is saying, hey, if you look, look to the snake and then you're healed. Seeing is believing, right? And, and it's actually the word there, when they saw the snake, they were healed. It, means, it doesn't mean like, oh, they glanced over there. They actually, it was this looking with intent to gaze, to contemplate, to fix their focus and attention on this bronze snake. I just imagine this snake like hanging off this guy's neck and he's just looking at the bronze snake not trying to ignore the pain and the biting and the slithering and the, all the slimy snake stuff. And he's focused on this bronze snake because Moses said, if we look to that snake, we'll be healed. This wasn't just glancing. This was a focus. This was a, a, a looking to, like, I lift my eyes up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? They were, it wasn't just this helpless, oh, look at that. They, built, they had time to build a bronze snake. Isn't that cool? This was a look of faith. And Jesus is saying, if they look, when you look at me like they looked at that bronze snake, you'll be healed. But let's, this is the part for me. Jesus called himself a snake. I think that's kind of weird. Jesus says, yeah, I'm a snake. Previously, you know, in another story, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he calls them snakes. And it wasn't like, oh, you snake. This was not a term of endearment, right? He was like, you are bad. You're evil. You're a snake. You're a brood of vipers. And now Jesus is calling himself a snake. So in the original story, there's something precious, bronze, that is made into the image of a snake to bring healing. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, the, the gospel's in there, right? So we get, okay, that's a cool story, Jesus. But why was this relevant to Nicodemus? He came to Jesus to teach him. Jesus, give me five steps to a better life. Five steps to eternal living. Teach me the way. I want to learn a lesson from you so that I know how to live a better life. 
Okay, so for the rest of my, for the rest of my talk, I'm going to do something a little da dangerous. I'm going to imagine, okay? We're going to imagine. We're going to what if. And it's okay. All this stuff I'm going to say right now, I cannot prove. I'm just saying what if. And I think it's okay. We can say what if. What if, what if Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about? What if when Nicodemus said, how is it possible for an old man to go into his mother's womb and be born again? What if he wasn't just being snarky? What if he wasn't just being a smart aleck or just being stupid? What if Jesus didn't have to convince the holiest man in Israel that he needed a savior? What if Nicodemus was saying, how is it possible? at my age, for all of this to be dealt with? What if he understood exactly what Jesus was talking about? I think he should have. So what if? What if he's not saying to Jesus, I don't understand what you're talking about. What if he's saying, I don't understand how? What if he had questions precisely because he understood exactly what Jesus was talking about? Jesus, I know me, and you know me. How can this happen? You know what's in my heart. You know how wicked I am. And here I am, the best and I'm empty. I can feel it. I'm far from God. And I've kept every law. I've kept every rule. I've memorized my Bible. I've kept the Sabbath. I've taught other people. I've done everything right. And I know, and you know, it's not enough. I don't think Nicodemus is being sarcastic. He came to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to him. Why would he come to Jesus and ask this question, say, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God, and then get snarky with him? He came to Jesus. He called him teacher. He admitted he has something to learn. He was humbling himself under Jesus. Why would he all of a sudden say, I don't think you know what you're talking about. I think Nicodemus was asking, Jesus, I've tried my best. How is this possible? How can I be born again? How can I start over? How can, what do you mean I can look to this bronze? What does it look like to look to you and be healed? How does this work? See, here's the truth. Nicodemus was an expert snake fighter his whole life. Every rule, every law, every sacrifice intended to keep the snakes at bay. He would, he would make a mistake. He would go wash himself at the temple and he would go offer the right he would go offer the right sacrifice and he would read his Bible and he would pray the right prayers. Fighting off the snakes. 
day by day, fighting off the snakes. And after a while, he goes, they keep coming. No matter what I do, every morning I wake up, more snakes at my door waiting for me. I pray and I pray and the snakes are waiting for me. I give and I give and I teach and I, I go and I give to the poor and I pray the prayers. and I, I offer my sacrifices and every day snakes waiting for me. If I'm one of those Israelites in this story, and there's thousands of snakes attacking us, I'm grabbing everything I got, and I'm crushing snakes. Rocks, my shoe, one of you, whatever it takes, I'm fighting for my life. And then some idiot says, hey, stop looking at the snakes. If you want to deal with the snakes, don't look at the snakes. What? If you want to be free from the snakes, you got to stop looking at the snakes. Nicodemus, the expert snake fighter, had come to Jesus, and he said, Rabbi, teacher, sensei, teach me how to fight the snakes. And Jesus tells this story. He says, you remember that story in the Old Testament? Just like that bronze snake, I'm going to be lifted up. Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, teacher. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm not the teacher, I'm the lesson. You came to me so I could teach you how to live a better life. But I'm not the teacher, I'm the lesson. See, your Bible isn't the lesson. It's the teacher. Jesus is the lesson. Nicodemus is saying, give me five ways to live a better life. Five steps to a better life, Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the way. Rabbi, what is truth? Me. Teacher, how do I live a better life? I am the life. Jesus is saying, I'm the lesson. I'm not the teacher, I'm the lesson. I love in this story, he starts out, Rabbi, you notice Jesus does not acknowledge that. Hey, yeah, you're right, I'm a teacher. He says, he's, when he says, you've got to be born again, Nicodemus, he's not only saying, Nicodemus, you've got to be uh, saved from your sin. He's saying, you've got to change the way you see the world. You're thinking I'm a teacher. And see, here's the thing about a teacher. The truth a teacher teaches is greater than the teacher. Right? Like, your physics professor is not greater than physics. So he's coming to Jesus. Teacher, teach me how to live life. And Jesus says, I'm not the teacher, I'm the lesson. You want to learn how to fight off snakes? I don't have a lesson for you. I am the lesson. Look at me. Look to me. Get your eyes off the snakes and look at me. See, the kind of wisdom that 
Nicodemus knew. Earthly wisdom is about what you know. But heavenly wisdom is about who you know. Because Jesus is wisdom revealed. Jesus wasn't just a teacher. One of my favorite scriptures, I quote this one all the time. John 5, 39, he says, Jesus is talking to the people just like Nicodemus. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find life. But the scriptures point to me. You look to the scriptures as a lesson. You think, if I memorize the scripture, the scripture's the goal. The scripture's not the lesson, it's the teacher. Jesus is the lesson. And I know this whole weekend is about your spiritual disciplines and running your race and, and learning how to pray and connect with God and learning how to read your Bible and all of that. I know plenty of people who know the Bible way better than me. Who don't love Jesus. He's the lesson. He's the point. It's not getting your doctrine all squared away. It's Jesus. If your time in the word, in your time of prayer, doesn't cause you to fall in love with and be in wonder of the most beautiful person in the universe, you're doing it wrong. He's the lesson. So tonight I don't, I just kind of wanted to set the table for your weekend that way. It's about Jesus. It's not about what Jesus can teach you. It's not about what Jesus can give you or where Jesus can take you. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the destination. He's the lesson, the Holy Spirit. And that word is the teacher. But Jesus is what I'm after. And I don't know what kind of snakes you're bringing in with you. I don't know what kind of snakes you're fighting off. This, today as I was praying for you guys, uh, just some things I was thinking about was uh, just the snakes of insecurity and fear. The snakes of pornography and lust. The snakes of anger and anxiety and worry and doubt. The snakes of religious pride and dead works. What are the snakes you've been keeping at bay? Paul writes in Corinthians that we with unveiled faces beholding Jesus were transformed. We're changed not by looking where we need to change. We're changed by looking to Jesus. He's the lesson.
Nicodemus came to Jesus to find a teacher. And Jesus said, I'm not the teacher, I'm the lesson. We don't need a whole bunch of kids who know how to pray good prayers and know, have memorized a whole bunch of scriptures. One of the great old-time revivalists used to say, I wake up every morning and I set myself on fire and people come for miles to watch me burn. You just need to love Jesus. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you that you're the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, I thank you that you've broken the bonds of religion and dead works. And you have satisfied the penalty of sin. You paid it on our behalf. And I thank you that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thank you that your perfect love casts out fear. I thank you that your grace is sufficient. But we thank you that salvation is a free gift. And Lord, we're here this weekend to be transformed. But we're not going to be transformed by learning about Jesus. We're going to be transformed by encountering the man. Looking deeply into your eyes and seeing that fire that burns. That passion for us. That love that drove you to the cross. When we look in your eyes so intently and we see the grace that we need, the mercy for our sin, that's where we're transformed. Lord, I pray this weekend that you would crush the head of the serpent. You would silence the voice of the enemy. And Lord, I pray that each and every one would walk away having heard your voice. Your word says that you sent your word and healed them. Lord, I pray this weekend, would you send a word to each and every heart and heal them in Jesus' name. Amen.